There's a beautiful novel written by a British novelist, mid-20th century, named Elizabeth Googe. And she's written a novel called The Dean's Watch, and it's about the dean of a cathedral. It takes place in a cathedral town in England. And one of the characters that you meet early on in the novel is a woman named Mary Montague. And when you first meet Mary in the novel, her situation, just her character breaks your heart. Mary has many siblings, and her parents have made it very clear to her that she is nowhere near as beautiful or attractive as all of her different siblings. Mary assesses her own personality and comes to the sober conclusion, I really am not gifted specifically in anything. I'm just not good at anything. Mary's disabled. And part of her daily life is that she lives with a level of chronic pain. Her parents have no interest in her. They're far more enchanted by their other children. And Mary begins to size up in her late teenage years what the course of her life will be like. She'll be trapped in her home due to her disability. And she'll be trapped under the constant disapproval of her parents. All of this culminates for Mary in her late teenage years when one of her beautiful sisters gets married in the cathedral, which is just several feet away from their beautiful home. They're a family of means. And she discovers that every other sister and other friends have been invited to be bridesmaids for this marrying sister except for herself. And to add to that crisis, she begins to realize that no one is going to come and tell her this. No one's going to come and tell her, not her sister, not her mother, why it is she's not been invited to participate in one of the great events of their family life. She says, I do not know what to do. And in that despair, in that moment of stark realization, she remembers old Sunday school lessons, and she remembers kind of a fuzzy, vague recollection of Jesus, who is a good shepherd, who came to love others. And with that tenuous connection to the gospel, she actually makes a vow. It isn't a vow for vengeance. It isn't a vow of self-pity. She actually makes a life vow, and she says, I will spend my life learning how to love. And indeed, the novel plays that out, not just in Mary's life, but in other figures as well. Elizabeth Googe, as a novelist, as a storyteller, she wants, as novelists do, to cast a vision. She wants to give the reader an experience of what she believes to be a core reality, an experience she wants to give in the Dean's Watch is that life is filled and punctured and punctuated by loss. That there will be one loss after another, one moment where if an individual is honest enough, they will say, like Mary did, I don't know what to do. But Guj also wants to cast the vision that out of those times of loss, out of those places of cul-de-sac and dead end, under obedience to Jesus can be life. That life can actually spring forth from loss. We've encountered a different author this morning. 
Isaiah, writing around 740, 730 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah, not a novelist, is actually a poet. And if you tried to read the book of Isaiah, and we're reading it right now in the 2019 lectionary, perhaps you've realized, I could use some novelistic kind of grand themes here. I'm a little lost. Because he often strings poem by poem by poem. They're called oracles. They're prophetic poems. Some of them are poems of doom. They're, they're poems of judgment. Others are poems of hope. But he, like the novelist Googe, he wants to cast a vision. He actually wants to literally cast a way in which he wants you to vision. He's a prophet. And in a Hebrew rendering, a prophet is a seer. Isaiah has seen that at reality and at the core of reality is a majestic, is a merciful, is a commanding God. And he wants to cast a vision for all of Israel and now to us of this reality he wants you to see. He wants you to learn how to look. He wants you to learn to see as he has seen. He ultimately wants you to learn to see as Jesus the Messiah sees. We'll get into that. He wants you to see the stump and all that the stump figures, all that the stump as a poetic image is meant to be in our lives. He wants you to see the stump. He wants you to see the loss. He wants you to own the reality that that which once flourished, a beautiful, glorious, green canopy tree is now a stump. He wants you to see that. But he wants you to see the secret of the stump as well. He wants you to see the son of Jesse, ultimately the son of God. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. It's a remarkable, we're, we're, we're going to work with a poem. So this is a, a biblical poem this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you, then you can not only read and learn, you can mark them, as our earlier prayer said. If you don't have your Bibles with you, please grab a Bible there in the seats, page 575. And the Bibles in the seats will take you to Isaiah chapter 11. Let's look at this piece. Okay, so we can't read it sequentially in the same way that you might read a novel that generally, generally speaking, more traditionally unfolds in a sequential form. Here we have something poetic. So actually verses 1 and verses 10, they go together. That's a very common biblical practice to create an enclosure, an inclusio, to, to start and end with something that's super important. So we're going to start with the stump image of Jesse. We're going to read about a root of Jesse in verse 1. And then do you see it coming again in verse 10? Right? So you've actually moved in verse 10 out of poetry into prose, which is just into prose, just a great little mechanism here. So there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal. Okay, so what we're going to see first is that Isaiah calls us to look, to see the stump. He'll explain what that stump is. We'll, we'll, we'll get this. Second, verses 2 to 9, we're to see the sun. And we'll have a beautifully poetic picture of Jesus. We're going to see the stump, verses 1 to 10. We're going to see the sun, verses 2 to 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. If that doesn't make immediate sense to you, you have hundreds of friends right now. It's a poetic image. We, we have to unpack it. It isn't actually immediately evident as to what's being said. Other parts of Scripture, immediately you have an idea of what the writer's saying. Here we don't. You're not supposed to. Why? Because poetry is supposed to create and incite interest. You're supposed to go, hmm, 
That's interesting. What could that mean? So we're, we're actually supposed to kind of push in on this and go, okay, shoot, stump, who's Jesse? Branch, roots, fruit, okay. So as we see this stump, we're now actually intrigued by the stump, and we're, we're looking at the stump and asking questions about the stump. That's because Isaiah wants you to get this stump image. The stump's image is mainly a stump and an image of great loss. Okay, first of all, to get this, we have to understand who's Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David. David was the second king of Israel. David himself followed a stump, which is to say he followed a reality and a symbol of incredible loss to Israel. Israel begged for a king. God said, I will be your king. Israel said, we want a king. And Saul was raised up as a king. It should have been that Saul's children from there on out and the hereditary kingship would have continued. But Saul reached such immorality, Saul reached such disobedience that the very first kingship, the very first time out, becomes an absolute failure. It becomes a reality of loss. Already the kingship in Israel's heart and mind is a loss. What will God do in the light of the stump of the Saul kingship who raised up David, the son of Jesse, not related to Saul at all? And David will go on through many perilous experiences to reign over Israel, what's called a golden era. It's an era that marks Israel's fruition and growth. And from then on, it will be prophesied that there'll be another king that will come in the Davidic line, which Jesus literally does, but this king will be far greater than David. So the stump of Jesse is something of loss, and yet something connected to Jesse, connected to David. I mean, a stump is an incredible poetic picture of loss, isn't it? If you just look at a stump, it's stumpy, right? I mean, it's like, who's, who's, who's like, let's go to the Arboretum. They have 500 stumps. Let's just walk around and admire the stumps at the Morton Arboretum. Nobody does that, right? If you have a stump in your yard, you want to get rid of that stump. I mean, farmers blow up stumps with dynamite. Because once it was beautiful. And it was flourishing and, and green or, or golden or orange. When you see that stump, you just think, that's gone. That beautiful thing, that flourishing thing, that thing that I thought in my life was going to be a canopy to me the rest of my life, that job, that child, that wife, that husband, that financial security, that thing that I thought would be a canopy the rest of my life, now that that's gone, all I have is the stump, and every day it's there to remind me. Every day the stump reminds you what once was no longer is, and you've got loss. Indeed, there are other stumps that are mentioned. Isaiah will talk about the realities of injustice. This is very important to Isaiah in this passage because he wants to talk about a king who will actually bring right sentence and set in justice. So he talks about the stump of justice. Stumps can be a reality in our own lives, and it's right to apply the scriptures that way. But Isaiah also asks that you look out beyond your own life to say, what are stumps in our society? What are places that once might have flourished but now are places of great loss? Where is there injustice? Where are there ways in which there are those who misuse the reality of authority or power? What, what's happening in our culture? And are there places that we've lost that once existed? Are there stumps in other places? What about the stumps around the world? What about the reality of the proliferation of millions of orphans? Orphans are almost always a result of war. 
and division and exploitation. Did you hear us, Mr. Ben? 74 children they've adopted, 400 more they care for. Why? Because northern Nigeria has been racked by the reality of loss and stump and violence. It's everywhere. And this is what I love about the Jewish and the Christian worldview. It doesn't deny it. He starts the poem with the stump. The Jewish Christian worldview isn't afraid of the stump because we know there's a secret. Isaiah wants to tell you about the secret. But to understand the secret and to appreciate the secret, we have to have the courage to say there are some grievous, heart-rending, often daily stump realities that we live with personally or that we experience in the larger society and culture or global realities. So see it. Isaiah puts it right in front of you. Like Mary in that novel, we ask, what can I do? You've got to see the secret or it'll overwhelm you. You've got to see the secret. What's the secret? It's actually not really a secret. God wants it revealed to everyone. The secret is that what looks dead and lost underneath where you can't see, that root is still alive. There is a root underneath what was a symbol of loss that still completely and strongly exists. It's a root so strong, a root so living, it will issue forth a shoot from what appeared to be an absolutely dead, lost stump. This is stunning news for Israel, as Isaiah prophesies this. He's saying, look, your king now is King Ahaz. He's making another alliance with Assyria. He's terrified of Assyria. He doesn't trust in the Lord his God. He only trusts in those of power. Kings are always making alliances with Assyria. They'll make them with Egypt because they're terrified that ultimately God will not protect them. And you, and you can fault them, but not too much because the terror of what would happen when an enemy force like that would besiege a city is profoundly disturbing. What would happen to children in those times? Utterly disturbing. I, I wouldn't even repeat it right now. It's in the scriptures. So you can see these kings who are responsible for the people. What do we do? Would God really come through when Assyria's marching in or Babylon's marching in or Egypt's marching in? Is there really a living root under what appears to be the complete loss of our nation? And Isaiah, with incredible prophetic, poetic courage, says, yes, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I mean, how do we actually live that, family of God? If you're tracking with me, bringing the reality of the stump, then maybe you're a little overwhelmed right now. Why? Okay, so there's a root, okay. There may be a shoot, all right. Like, how can I know it'll make a difference, right? Like, how can I know that, that something in our culture could actually change? We need testimony. We need the testimony of Scripture. We need testimony from others. We need others to help us believe that there is a living root underneath what appears to be a dead stump. Here's a testimony from, from one of the members of our church. Martin Zigner, been with us for many, many years. His wife, Tara, was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1990. She overcame that breast cancer only to find out in 2000, 10 years later, that the breast cancer had come back but it metastasized to her spine to her liver, 
throughout her body. She was given six months to live. I remember it very well. I was, I was a brand new rector here at Resurrection. And we had three women of God, three women of prayer. And they banded together and they went over to pray for Tara. They laid hands on her, anointed her with oil. And they asked God to come in power, looking at the reality that was one of almost inevitable loss and death. Martin said, that night I went to sleep. And as I slept that night, I felt as if the presence of God came on our home like a ton of bricks. When I awakened that morning, he said, it's like I was walking through the air with the consistency of honey. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it speaks to me. It's thick. It's sweet. There was something sweet, he said, in our home that next morning. He said, I just felt great peace and joy. The root was being made real. But here's how good God is to Martin in that moment of despair and terror. If that wasn't enough, he goes to the kitchen sink in the mornings and get his coffee ready. They had a vase of roses that had been given to them as a gift. They had not tended to them amid the crisis they were in. And the roses had died several days prior, but they hadn't even gotten rid of them yet. And he looked over at the roses, and on every single stem was a new bud of God saying, there's, there's life here still. Tara would live 14 more years, and ultimately she did die of cancer. She went to be with the Lord. But there was a root. There was a secret to that stump. And what Isaiah wants to call us into as a seer is he wants you to learn to see not only the stump, but as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in the Bible, we're to see the root underneath the stump. And we're to live our lives and center our entire lives, adjust everything in our lives around the magnificent of the resurrection root of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is calling us to that. He moves right on then into verse 2, where he now wants to reveal to you through poetic prophecy, he wants to prophesy 700 years ahead of the birth of Jesus who Jesus is. He tells us that the Spirit of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in a different way, as, as we see in this era. He, he is active. He comes on prophets. He'll come on kings. Ultimately, he'll be given to every single believer. This is a foreshadowing of what we'll understand as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rests on Jesus, rests on Messiah, rests on the King. And then we learn, what is the king like? What is Jesus like? And this is just going to be a picture. Right now, just cue beautiful face of Jesus. This comes in the center of us right now. So as you look in that Bible passage there, just look on it. You're just looking on the face of Jesus. What's Jesus like? Well, the first thing we read, and there are couplets in verse 2, is that he has wisdom and understanding. And the kind of origins of these words in the Hebrew Scriptures, wisdom has to do with that ability to give direction, to guide. And we have wisdom literature throughout the Scriptures. But often with human beings, when they guide us, right, we might get guidance, but we don't always necessarily feel like they understand us. You've got to kind of say, oh, well, I got some helpful advice or guidance, but they don't fully understand the situation. I have to apply it. Here's how it works with Jesus. He gives you guidance, but he also has understanding. That Hebrew word has to do with seeing to the heart of things. 
So Jesus gives you guidance, but he gives you guidance because he sees right to your heart. He sees right to the impossibly thorny knot of the injustice or the loss that's happening for you. That understanding goes right there. That understanding is at the heart of bringing justice because for those who've experienced injustice, their plea is, doesn't anyone see? Doesn't anyone understand what's really happening here? That's what understanding does. Let me read, he has a spirit of counsel and might. That couplet comes from a kind of military image. The idea there is that Jesus operates strategically. He operates in a, in, in a kind of military strength that's connected then to, is it verse 5? Look at verse 5. It talks about a belt. So a, a belt would be um, something that you would have in armor or something you would have for, for martial work, for, for military work. And a belt symbolizes a kind of action, a readiness for action. The Apostle Paul will pick this up. He'll use this from Isaiah later if you know. I mean, Ephesians, we'll talk about the, the armor of God and a belt. Okay, so, so Jesus, Jesus, he's got wisdom. He understands who you are, and he's ready to act. And he can act. He knows exactly what needs to happen, and he knows how to make that happen in a way that will bring justice and peace and the truth of God to everyone. This is what Jesus is like. Not only that, he has knowledge, we read in the next couplet, and the fear of the Lord. So sometimes you'll meet somebody um, and you'll walk away and go, man, they're super smart and super humble. Not that that's that unusual. But when you meet someone that way, you, you notice it. They're really bright. They know all kinds of things. And they're so humble. That's Jesus he has all knowledge. He truly knows all things. And yet his life revolves around the fear, the respect, the awe of the Lord. He himself, we will understand, is fully God. And yet he also honors his father and reveres his father. And he has set his life around the total reverence and awe and pointing all to his father in heaven as others appointed to him. To reverence and have fear of the Lord is to adjust everything in your life along the reality that God is merciful and God is powerful, that he has counsel and might, wisdom and understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus does. I mean, don't you want to just be close to him? Someone like that? I mean, it just makes you love him. And it makes you honor him. And it makes you realize that only someone like that, only someone like that can handle the stump in my own life or the stumps that I see all around me. That's exactly what Isaiah is taking us to. Look at verse 3. So his delights in the fear of the Lord... So, so this, is, this is the source of Jesus' joy, is the fear of the Lord. And this is how this affects him. He doesn't judge by what his eyes see, and he doesn't decide to speak by what his, eye, his ears hear, which is to say that Isaiah is saying, I want you to see how Jesus sees. 
I want you to be a seer, not just to see Jesus in the center. I actually want you to come in next to Jesus and see as Jesus sees. Because when justice needs to be meted out, one of the great concerns is the person that's going to met out the justice, sentence and justice, has an impression that's not accurate. They haven't seen what's really going on. And the whole point of a, of a court case, right, is to try and get a judge to see or the jury to see what's really happening. Jesus doesn't need jury. Jesus doesn't, th- doesn't need these evidence facts. He actually sees all of this. Every judge has to decide upon what basis will they make a decision. Our Supreme Court justices are in constant debate around how does one interpret the Constitution of the United States of America because it's from that that they make their decisions. From what does Jesus make his decisions? His very presence. His very self. He judges by what he sees of who God is and all that's given us in the Holy Scriptures. And he sees it all. He sees beyond the lying. He sees beyond the false. He sees beyond the corruption. He sees beyond all those things in the heart of the matter. And he's doing something about it. He's doing it now, and he will do it long term in the second coming of Christ. We're going to get there. Isaiah is going to take us there. Because righteousness is his belt. And faithfulness is his action. That's what he's like. That's how he works. And if you're all in touch with the stumps of your own life or of this world, this is our only hope. Right here. So see, and ask God to help you see as Jesus sees. Advent, which has to do with coming, right? Advent means coming. It's about seeing Jesus coming. We see him in the incarnation. And we're to see him again when he'll return to establish a new heaven and a new earth. We're to see him. So um, Advent wreaths, they're great. And like if you've like graduated, like you have a pink candle and the purple ones, you put a white one there for Christmas, that's great. It's a good thing. But that really isn't Advent, just so we're clear. All right? It's important. It's a nice, it's helpful. No, Advent is seeing. Advent is asking to see supernaturally. Advent is being willing to walk in the Lord in such a way that angels are a reality for you. The dreams that come upon you, like that came upon Joseph, is a reality for you. That the Word of God made flesh, the Son of Man, Jesus, fully God and fully man, is a reality for you. That's supernatural. And as that we see the supernatural, we open ourselves to the supernatural. What else are we preparing for? If God actually became man, then the reality of the supernatural. So ask God to see as Jesus sees, not just what's obvious, but what's behind. Because that will help us to see his new society. Verses 6 to 9. It's really right and good that as you read the Bible, you learn how to apply it to your own life. That's an important part of Bible study and understanding the scriptures. They're there for your own life, but they're there for much more. Because God is about more than just your life as much as he loves you. He's about establishing a society. He's about establishing a new kingdom. And this new kingdom is given to us in verses 6 to 9. The kingdom is described as a holy mountain. Mountains are where human beings would meet with God. Mountains connote and symbolize and were actual places where communion with God would happen. Likely this has, with many holy mountains in the scriptures, this is very likely the holy mountain of Jerusalem. This is where Jesus will return to establish a new society, a new kingdom. You see that? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Okay, can we just, just take one moment and breathe a sigh of relief that there's going to come a time where there's no hurting, no destroying, 
What's it look like? Well, he gives us all these images. You get 11 animals here. Zoology lovers, this is awesome. I mean, come on, this is poetry. This is really fun. You can actually, there's a delight here. Animals everywhere, right? Lions and wolves and bears and leopards, oh my. I mean, you got wolves, you got cows, you have bears. I mean, you have a cow. I mean, for Midwesterners, we get a cow, everyone. <laughs> right? I mean, if I was preaching in Wisconsin right now, they'd be up on their feet cheering. They love cows. There's a cow in the Bible. It's part of the new society. What's going on with these, with, with these different animals that are a delight? There's actually something very serious going on. No longer is there predator. No longer is there prey. No longer are there profound power differentials where, the, where what usually happens is exploitation or the best that can happen is some kind of negotiation between those who have power. Negotiation, exploitation, it all leads in the kingdom of Jesus to reconciliation. It all leads to animals that were against each other, wolves lying down with lambs. Please don't let the familiarity you might have with that passage have you miss what the new society looks like. I mean, this is so much so that lions are eating straw. They're like, yeah, an ox, ribeye, nah. Not appealing to me anymore. But that straw, a little salt and pepper, cilantro, delicious. <laughs> right? Because everything's changed. The point is everything's changed. What's, what, what's happening? Why are there animals in such harmony with each other? Why are we hearing about waters covering the sea? If, if you know the Bible, does that remind you of anything? Waters covering the sea? Can you get somewhere? Can you go to Genesis chapter 1 with me, where there's the creation and the waters are covering the earth? And then land is created, and then animals are created, and then you remember what's created last? Adam and Eve. Wait, wait what, what is happening here? What is Isaiah saying? Here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, Eden is returning. He's saying, I'm going to establish a new garden on this earth. It's going to be a new Eden. And in this new Eden, one of the central things you're going to feel is relief. You're just going to be so relieved. It's over. That nightmare, that nightmare is over. I mean, if you have to live with the stump for some of us, many years, but at some point, there will be no more stumps. Look at verse 8. Here's the, here's the heart of the problem. It's building toward this. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. There's a weaned child with the adders. Oh, adder, cobra, what's happening here? What are these, right? They're serpents. They're snakes. If you know the Bible, you know that actually this Eden reality where God was creating human beings to be in harmony with each other, in harmony with nature, and in harmony with him, was absolutely corrupted by a serpent, which is, the, which, which is the reality of Satan coming in the form of a serpent who came to confuse Adam and Eve and say, God is at the center of all reality, and the word of God? God said that? You can't trust the word of God. And what Isaiah is saying here is that curse, that reversal that has caused such misery, such terror, such panic throughout the annals of history and in our own lives, that will be reversed. And a little child, like the little child that we are going to celebrate was born to us in Bethlehem, he'll be there. And the serpent will have no more power, family of God. The serpent will have no more influence. Satan will be vanquished. That's the promise in verse 8. And then ultimately there's going to be another dead tree. This time not a stump. Right? Looks like that. That's the tree. 
The Old Testament says that he was hung on a tree. And only will there be another dead tree, there'll be another living root. There'll be a secret about that tree that Jesus, who will fully die, will not be able to be held in that tomb. But like a resurrection root, he will come forth in power and he will rise from the dead. And he will come into our lives now, into the life of the church, and begin to establish his new society, and ultimately he will return, the resurrected, victorious king. He gives us reason as Christians to say, oh, death, where is your sting? Because the root is the root of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's being prophesied hundreds of years before so that the secret isn't really a secret. It's revealed to you today. Family of God, it will be well. There will be peace established. The serpent will be completely vanquished. So see the stone, but see the Son who's greater. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.